Hi, my name is Danielle and you're listening to Crime and Mystery Canada. On this podcast, we discuss subjects that might be creepy to some and sometimes even frightening. Some of our episodes will deal with serious subject matter, while others will be more lighthearted. Please keep in mind that I am not an expert on any of the topics I cover, just an interested party, and as always, listener discretion is advised. Hi everyone! Today we're traveling to Manitoba, and we're covering the case of Helen Betty Osborne and the case of John Joseph Harper. I'm Danielle. And I'm Paul And you're listening to Crime and Mystery Canada. If you've listened to Season 5 of Someone Knows Something, you may have heard of Helen Betty Osborne. The host of that podcast, David Ridgen, dedicated an episode in the series to it. Betty, as she was known to her friends, was a Cree woman from Norway House, Manitoba, who was kidnapped and murdered in 1971. According to the information found on Wikipedia, she was an ambitious young woman who wanted to become a teacher. Because there was no high school in Norway House, she attended Margaret Barber Collegiate in the Paw after going to Guy Hill Residential School. One of her schoolmates interviewed in the episode of Someone Knows Something talks about their time in residential school and how they attempted to run away on several occasions. When she was 19 years old, she was attending Margaret Barber Collegiate and she'd been living in the Paw, uh, staying in her room with a family. On the eve of her death, she was spending some time with friends. Now, the sources that I looked at vary on what happened that evening. But according to the friend that David Ridgen interviewed, a group of them had been drinking that night. As their night wound down, one of Betty's friends said that he would take her back home, and it seemed that he did, but he didn't drop her off right at the door, and the most likely scenario is that she decided that she would head back out. Just as a pause, I think we've all been there at some point in our lives where we were out having a good time and everybody decided to call it a night but we weren't quite ready for it. And that's kind of the impression I get as to what happened. Everybody said, okay, good night, let's all head home. But she wasn't quite ready to head home. Yeah, and sometimes when you've been out drinking and like you're saying, you're not ready to call it a night, you get an idea to go and visit somebody else thinking that they're either going to be willing to continue the party or or, or go out and, 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 and spend some more time at, having a good time exactly like go out somewhere else see if people you know are there or if you can just have another drink or things like that i think most of us especially back in the days of our youth have all gone through that situation and for most of us everything turned out okay but unfortunately this wasn't the case for betty little information seems to exist about exactly what she did from the time her friend dropped her off until about 2 30 in the morning walking back home at that time she was abducted beaten, and stabbed over 50 times with a screwdriver. A teenager tracking rabbits found her body the next day. According to a CBC article from 2016, it took 16 years for anyone to be brought to justice for her murder. And even then, the results from that ring a little bit hollow. We'll get into more detail of what happened to her as we get into the episode tonight, and we'll talk about how the case was solved. We're going to switch over to the next case, and we're going to look into the death of John Joseph Harper. On March 9, 1988, he died from a gunshot wound 
inflicted by Constable Robert Cross. John Joseph, known as J.J., was a member of the Wasagamak Indian Band, the executive director of Island Lake Tribal Council, and a leader in the Manitoba First Nations community. At the time of his death, he was married with three children and was 37 years old. So this J.J. guy is... Uh without doubt, somebody that's fairly well-respected within his community. He is. He was a leader in the community. He was well-known. According to the information found in the Aboriginal Justice Inquiry, on the night of March 9th, JJ was out drinking with some friends. He seems to have drank quite a bit through the night, as the blood alcohol level found at the time of his death was 0.22. Some people from the last bar he was in said that he was acting sort of aggressively that night, but other people say that they don't remember any behavior from him that was out of the ordinary. Either way, when the night drew to an end, he was offered a ride home by a friend, which he declined. He set off towards his house on foot. That night, around the same time, in the same area, a car was stolen by two youth, and they took it out for a joyride. Constable Cross and his partner, Constable Hodgins, spotted the stolen vehicle around 2 a.m. and proceeded to give chase. They broadcasted their location, but they didn't broadcast a description of the individuals driving the car as they couldn't see them properly. The thieves that were driving the car crashed it into a snowbank and fled on foot. Cross proceeded to give chase on foot and caught one of the youth, who only described his accomplice as being nicknamed Manny and being 17 to 19 years old. I'm assuming here that he didn't know the, the other guy very well. Um, maybe they'd just been hanging out when they decided to steal the car. Or he was trying to cover up. Also, maybe he didn't want to give any information out. That's also possible. Other officers arrived on the scene, and they catch the other suspect. His arrest was broadcasted over the police radio immediately. So Cross caught the first one, and then other officers caught the second one, and they announced to everyone, we've got the second suspect, everyone can stop looking for him. Case closed. You would think. At 2.37 a.m., Cross had left the patrol car and was headed toward the area of the arrest when he encountered J.J. Harper. Now, what happened next is kind of questionable, and there's only one side of the story that can be told. But from what was pieced together, Cross approached J.J. and asked him for his ID, to which Harper replied that he didn't have to tell the officer anything. Harper continued to walk past Cross. Cross then reached out to grab Harper, who pushed him. They fell together in a struggle, According to Cross, during the struggle, he felt Harper reach for his gun, and the gun came out of the holster. As they struggled over the weapon, the gun was discharged. JJ was shot and died a short while later. Now, I don't know a whole lot about guns. I haven't used them very much. I'm having a hard time understanding here how that would happen when the safety was on the gun. Well, not only the safety on the gun, I would think that the gun would also have some sort of a strap over the holster holding it in place so that strap would have had to have been undone right because there is a special way to take a gun out of the holster you don't just pull it out of there 
Right. Usually there's a strap with a staff on it uh, that holds the weapon in place. And if you're familiar with your weapon and your holster, you know exactly where to reach to pull it. If you're wrestling with somebody that has the holster and you're trying to get it out, you would have to be lucky to undo that staff. Plus, there's a safety on the weapon itself. Right. So it would have to have the the luck of being able to, well, good luck or bad luck, I guess, in this case, but of being able to actually pull it out of the holster and then somehow have accidentally undid the safety on it and then pulled the trigger. Right. And I, and I don't know what the, uh, the rules would be for a police officer, whether he has a, a bullet in the chamber at all times, I, I don't know. Does it mention what type of what, what type of weapon it was? No, I didn't see any information on what kind of gun it was. Okay. So, what happened next, and how the case was handled, caused an avalanche of events that would lead to an inquiry. The day after the shooting, Officer Cross was cleared of any wrongdoing. It was stated that the event, so the shooting, was precipitated by the assault of an officer. One of the big issues here, I mean, there's more than one, but one of the big ones is when they publicly cleared him, the investigation was actually still going on. So they didn't even have all the information before they declared that he was cleared and hadn't done anything wrong. So it seems they already had an outcome for it before it was completed. Right. And also, like, there's a lot of information um the documents on the inquiry are all available to read, and it's, it's pretty lengthy, but one of the things that was said is even as they were investigating, they were just basically investigating everything to corroborate Cross's story. So there were other witnesses um, talking about guns being drawn that night by officers. The officers denied it, but the people that were always believed was the officers and not the other people bringing things up. So there was a lot of information that was kind of just disregarded because it didn't fit the narrative that they were looking to, to follow. There was a public outcry after this. And the reason that we're covering both these cases tonight is because they spark the Aboriginal Justice Inquiry, which took place in 1988. The inquiry would try to get to the bottom of why it took 16 years to make an arrest in Betty's case, when apparently many people in the area seemed to have known what happened to her, and also why J.J. Harper was killed and the officer cleared so quickly without a thorough investigation. The results of the inquiry are quite lengthy, and I can't get into all the details that are included, but we're going to review what was brought forth about the cases and the conclusions that came out of it. So let's get into a little bit more detail about what happened to Betty. According to the information available from the Aboriginal Justice Inquiry, Betty was walking along 3rd Street on November 13, 1971, when a car pulled up to her. There were four white men in the car. Paul Houghton was the driver, and there was also Dwayne Johnston, Lee Colgan, and Norman Manger in the vehicle. After the car pulled up to her, Dwayne Johnston got out and tried to convince Betty to go with them to a party. She did not want to join them and she refused. She was then forced into the vehicle where she was assaulted by Colgan and Johnston. She screamed and she tried to get away. The four men then drove her out to a cabin 
that belonged to Houghton's family in Clearwater Lake, where she was removed from the car and beaten by Johnston while the other men watched. Because she was struggling and screaming, the men became worried that someone would hear her, so they pulled her back into the car and they drove out to a pump house near the lake. The beating continued, and she was stabbed over 50 times with a screwdriver. A lot of rage there. Yeah, 50 times is a lot. It's And she was beaten very severely. The evidence shows that two men then dragged her into the forest and her clothes were hidden. They then left and the men went their separate ways. As mentioned earlier, her body was discovered later the next day. Police investigated the crime, at first focusing on family and friends, but coming up empty. I think that's pretty usual. I mean, obviously you want to start with the people that are close to her. That's usually where an investigation starts. You would think that um, that's where an investigation starts. If it's starting with the family for the right reasons. Right. And I think even if the family is not being investigated directly, it's always where you want to start your questioning, right? Because they probably have information that might lead you to someone. Yes. Then in May, an anonymous letter was received actually naming the four suspects. The writer of the letter stated that someone had disclosed information to her at a party about who was responsible for Betty's murder. After receiving this letter, the police seized Lee Colgan's car, and inside the car they found traces of blood, hair, and a piece of a bra strap. The men, however, were not cooperating with the police on the advice of their attorney, and apparently not enough evidence existed to move the case forward. Eventually, the investigation stalled. It was intermittently looked at until 1986, when a new officer decided to try and solve it. It's funny to me to hear they found blood and hair in the car, but they didn't have enough evidence. Well, I suspect that the forensic testing that was available back then is was nothing compared to uh, what we have today. They probably had blood typing and uh, the hair. Yeah, you could probably match like color on the hair and that's pretty much it. It's funny, like, I, and I know I'm looking at it at, with an eye of um, today being 2020, but when you hear blood, you think like, oh, it's, it's going to be pretty straightforward. But before DNA, it really wasn't. No, and they may have had some sort of, even though they weren't cooperating, some, some story or reason for why there had been hair and a, a piece of a bra strap in the back of a car. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, they were young men. I'm sure they found something to say there. In 1986, Officer Urbanowski looked at the evidence and decided to try and move the case forward. He put out a call for witnesses in the newspaper, and people actually started coming forward. Eventually, through this witness testimony that spurred the case forward, Two of the four men responsible were charged with Betty's murder in 1986. Colgan received immunity for his testimony. Houghton was charged, but later acquitted. Johnston received a life sentence for her murder, and no charges were ever brought up against Manger. And I can understand that they probably only had so much information they could work with and probably needed Colgan's testimony to move forward. But to me, these results seem to fall really short of what we would call justice. I agree. Uh, unless um, 
one person was responsible for all of those stabbings, but they all had a hand in it and hid, hid the facts for all those years. Exactly. No one came forward. They all stood there. They were all responsible. And maybe some people deserve more of the responsibility than others, but I, I do feel like one person going to jail for it really just doesn't seem fair. It doesn't, it doesn't seem like justice. No, it doesn't. Now, the inquiry happened because it took 16 years for the case to go anywhere. And the big thing with, with this is it seems that many people in the PAW knew who was responsible for Betty's death, but no one would talk. In your research, was there any indication of a connection between any of the four men that were responsible for this? and members of the police force. I didn't see any of that. And it does look like after they got that letter, they actually did try to move it forward. But when it didn't go anywhere, it looks like it was just dropped. So an initial effort was made. And I mean, there might be information there that we don't have, but it doesn't look like they tried um, to push it forward after that. A lot of what was discussed was that many people in the town knew who had committed the crime, but they weren't that concerned because Betty was First Nations, so no one bothered to come forward. Urbanowski does dispute this in an episode of Someone Knows Something. He says that a lot of people that knew were actually afraid to come forward, and it was actually fear that was stopping them, um, not a lack of caring. In the case of Helen Betty Osborne, the inquiry did make some recommendations. One of, the, one of the recommendation was having more representation of First Nations people in the police force and in the Justice Department. In John Joseph Harper's case, a lot of scrutiny was put on the police force and on the fact that Officer Cross was exonerated before the investigation was concluded. They pointed out several shortfalls of the police force for having failed to properly secure the scene, having failed to fingerprint the weapon before it was handled by several officers. So if JJ had struggled and touched the gun, his fingerprints, we would assume, would be on there. Uh, usually uh, the weapons are regularly cleaned and oiled. So if his fingerprints would not have been on the weapon, some of the oil or the cleaning solvent from the weapon could have been on his hands. Right. And I guess that goes back to, and I didn't see anything at all about this, but um, testing for um, gunpowder residue as well, right? If he was holding the gun. Right. Well, I, I guess it wouldn't matter where your hand was on the gun. You should have residue on your hands. If his hand is on the gun, he should have residue on his hands. And if it wasn't, they should have been able to determine if it was at close range, how close it was based on the gunshot residue on his clothing. True. And again, like, I'm just thinking like if they struggled and it was Cross who accidentally pulled the trigger in the struggle, again, there would be evidence of JJ's hands being on that, that weapon. Yes. Even if he didn't pull the trigger himself. Um, according to a 1989 article from McLean's magazine, the inquiry may have contributed to the suicide of one officer involved. And apparently, Officer Cross testified under heavy sedation as he was under psychiatric care at the time. In the article, there was a lot of talk from the police force saying that it had been a tremendous, the inquiry had been a tremendous strain, 
And I have no doubt about that, but at the same time, it doesn't mean that it's not something important. And I think it's important for police forces to also provide mental health support for their officers as well. One of the recommendations that came out of the inquiry was that third parties should investigate officer-involved shootings, which I think, in my mind, that's always how it worked, but apparently it wasn't. Apparently they would investigate themselves. Yes, and uh, especially if it's a small town police force where they don't necessarily have access to all of the equipment that they would need to, uh, to properly investigate it. Yeah, and I think I failed to mention this so far, but that was actually, uh, that would have been the Winnipeg Police Department. So, again, it's, um, there's definitely a bias there if you're investigating your own officers. So I do think it's something that's important, and this was recommended through that inquiry. But an article in the Winnipeg Press from 2015 says that it's not always the case still to this day that this happens. So in some cases, it's an independent party, but not always. This may have changed since 2015, but between 88 and 2015, they should have had ample time to implement those recommendations. You would think there was enough time that passed that uh, it would be enforced right across the country. And I think that these inquiries, like they talked about how it was difficult on the officers and all of that, and never mind everything that the First Nations people and the people involved in the case were going through, but... If you're putting people through all of that, the parties on both sides, you would like to think that the conclusions that come out of it are taken seriously. Yes, and I think the stress is equally difficult on both sides of the story. And being a law enforcement officer, you either want to clear your name or have a clear explanation of what it is that actually happened. Exactly, and if something you know, something that shouldn't have happened did because protocol wasn't followed. You want to come up with solutions as to how, what we can change so this doesn't happen again. Yeah. And at the end of the day, um, you're looking at trying to dissect uh, what was probably less than a minute and uh, determine what brought it to that end. Right. And it's easy to it's easy to be on the outside looking in and thinking, well, he should have done this and he shouldn't have done that. But when you're in the heat of the moment, um, it, it's, it's, it's really difficult. And it, it's, you know, if some recommendations can come out of the inquiry that could make it a, a safer world for, for everybody, for civilians and police officers, well, let's put everything in place that was recommended. Yeah. So there was a lot of discussion as well about the validity of the street check on JJ. Officer Cross should have been aware that the suspects in the car theft had both been stopped. Therefore, he really had no reason to stop JJ in the first place. And if he hadn't, none of these events would have taken place. The reason that I thought it was important to talk about these cases today is that it really feels like these events took place over 30 years ago or the inquiry did. And it seems like the issues that are being brought up are still really prevalent in our society today. Street checks are still happening and minorities are more likely to be asked to identify themselves. There are hundreds of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls whose cases still haven't been solved. I have a tremendous amount of respect for police officers. Their jobs are difficult. 
They put themselves in harm's way to serve and protect, and they need to make split-second decisions that could have enormous consequences. But I do think that organizations make mistakes, and what we need to do when a mistake is made is to learn from it. If an inquiry is called for and conclusions are found and recommendations are made, that should not be the end of it. Actions need to take place. And the public needs to care because if it doesn't, these actions won't happen due to lack of funding and lack of support. I think we can all learn lessons from these two tragedies. We need to care, we need to get involved, and we need to talk about it. It's the only way that things are ever going to change. We had a case just last week in Brunswick where a young First Nation man was uh, hit and killed by a, by a hit and run driver and um, the accused was on trial and was found not guilty and the whole trial was held in French and the whole First Nations community are mostly only speak uh, Mi'kmaq and, and English so they weren't able to participate in, in the hearings. And they didn't have translators there? Uh, apparently not to the satisfaction of the community. Right. And the accused had requested that his trial be held in French, which he, ha which he has a right to, but there should have been translation. Of course, especially for family members and the people um, supporting the victim of this. Exactly. So here we are in 2020 still dealing with a lack of respect for minorities and recommendations that were made 35 years ago still have not been respected. No, and it just feels like we just keep repeating the same patterns over and over and having inquiries or looking into things and saying, oh, this is what we're going to do to be better. And then everyone talks about it. Everyone's excited about what's going to change. And then it just kind of quietly goes away. Until there's another incident. And I think you can only apologize to a certain group of society so many times before the trust is gone. Well, I think that's true for any apology. Like after you've said sorry, but you haven't changed your behavior, what does your sorry mean? It doesn't mean anything. That carries no weight. It's just a, like if I think about street checks, there's a lot of talk of them happening um, in bigger cities all the time. And honestly, the first time I heard about that, I had no idea what it was. Because I've never in my life been stopped by an officer and asked for my ID just because I was out on the street. Like, that was not even a thing that happened in my mind. Right. And I haven't experienced that either. But uh, there have been situations uh, of that happening quite recently in the province that you're living in right now. Yeah, it's a big topic of discussion in Nova Scotia. And we need to figure out a way of making it right and making it fair for everyone. I think that the uh, society has come a long ways in regards to how we all treat each other, but there are still some small groups of people that uh, really need our help in order to be respected and to have their voices heard. And unless we stand uh, side by side with them, it's not going to happen. And I think that's really important because when we talk about things changing, the like it can't just be the, the police organizations or the government. Like the people need to 
push for that as well because if they're not pushing then these changes just aren't going to take place as a society we need to advocate so we're going to wrap things up tonight um, with a moment of kindness I know after everything that's happened in the last few weeks, I do need to think about and talk about the kind things that have been happening around us instead of all the sadness and tragedy. I'd like to start by saying thank you to my Aunt Carol for sending me some homemade masks. Uh, We need to wear them now at work, and work does provide us with disposable ones, uh, but... I also try to be environmentally conscious with this stuff and throwing out a mask and then throwing out rubber gloves and all that was feeling kind of wrong, but I'm not very crafty. So um, thank you to her for going out and mailing those over to me. They fit very well and they worked out great. In another mask related story the other day, I had a coworker come in and it's not someone I know very well, uh, but I had run into her and we'd had a few discussions actually about that subject of um, throwing out disposable products over and over again. And she came in and gave me a reusable mask as well. And I offered her some money because she had bought it and she turned it down and it wasn't necessarily a big thing. But it did mean a lot to me that this person that I only know a little bit took a moment to be kind. It seems to be a little more touching when it's a stranger that is doing something kind because there's no, there, there's, they don't need to do it. They're doing it out of the kindness of their heart and wanting to support one another. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. Like it's it, when it's a friend, it's great. And it's great when people support and help each other. But this person, they weren't invested in me. They didn't know me very well. But they just decided at some point they thought about me and did something nice, which was which was really, really touching. It is. And, and, and you know, there's nothing expected and nothing to be gained by them by doing it other than the feeling good about it. Yeah, that's true. Have you encountered some moments of kindness this week? I have. uh, In my job, I've been working from home four days a week. But one day a week, I work on site and we're operating a drive-through pickup service for essential products and placing the orders directly in the customer's trunks. Mm -hmm. And when I opened the trunk uh, this week, there was a lady had written a note inside her trunk thanking us for the service we were providing and how much that was appreciated so i I found that kind of touching that they had gone out of their way to do that yeah and those things aren't really big but just the fact that someone took the time because your day would have been okay had this not happened but it's just like an extra little something that makes your day just go by easier and puts a smile on your face and then in turn usually makes you kinder towards other people as well that's right. And and the fact that she took time out of her day to make the sign, knowing fully well that only one person would see it, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it meant a lot to me. I, I thought it was a nice gesture. And it's a very nice gesture. And I think we all need to take the time. And it again, it's just little things. It's nothing big. But to think about that and to um, see where in our lives we can carve out those little moments to make other people feel that way. And that's all for tonight. Thanks to everyone for listening. I hope you stay safe out there. Good night. If you like the podcast and could take a moment to share, review, and subscribe, we would greatly appreciate it. You can reach us at crimeandmysterycanada at gmail.com. Please feel free to submit a story for our weekly dose of kindness, and we might pick your story to read on the podcast. 
You can also send me suggestions for local mysteries or crimes that you would like to see featured on our show. We can also be found on our Instagram page, Crime and Mystery Canada.